today, looking at the book of Daniel. I don't know if you've read the book of Daniel. It's um, a slightly uh, different one to some of the others, Um, but it's a story from the Old Testament. I want to begin quickly by reading the first few verses of chapter 1, which I've handily marked, Um, but you're welcome to follow along um, either on the screen, on a phone, or, or if you've brought a Bible with you with that. So it says... In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered, and this is definitely one of those words I can't pronounce, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Balthazar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, um, Abednego. Amazing. We'll pause there. So, um, if you're not familiar kind of with the story, um, basically the people of Israel are God's people. And the kind of story of the Old Testament in a nutshell, basically, is God's people kind of thinking that they can kind of do it on their own, thinking they can do it without God, thinking they can just do it by themselves, and they kind of go off and do their own thing, and it all goes completely wrong. They get invaded, and, and, and kind of they get to a point where it's like, this is really bad, and so they cry out to God again, and God rescues them. And this kind of goes on in a cycle. Um, And over the years, God starts to warn them and say, hey guys, look, if you keep wanting to turn away from me, there's going to come a point where I'm just going to let you. If you want to walk away from me, if you don't want to do life with me, that's fine. I will let you. But you will experience the full reality of that. I will withdraw my protection from you. You'll be on your own. If you want to be on your own, you'll be on your own. And um, that happens. Um, it starts with kind of um, Assyria, um, the, you know, the, the big power, invades the kind of northern part of Israel. And, and finally, kind of here, we've got um, uh, Babylon um, under King Nebuchadnezzar invading um, Jerusalem, the kind of southern bit of, um, of, of Israel. And when, when kind of like a king like this would in, invade a country like this, he, he wouldn't kind of try and control it in, in, in the sense that it becomes part of Babylon, he would do it a bit like, um, to be honest, Russia have poorly attempted to do in Ukraine, where you kind of attempt to kind of put like a puppet leader in and kind of, uh, kind of have the state ruled independently, but still kind of under your control, if that makes sense. And so what, they, what happened here is um, King Nebuchadnezzar puts um, his, his kind of like puppet leader in, and he takes away out of Israel, this is why it's called exile, um, a whole load of people and brings them to Babylon. The people he brings to Babylon are the kind of the future leaders, the people who have got a bit about them, the people who are educated, the people um, who are from kind of nobility. And, and they bring them to Babylon and they are put in this kind of assimilation scheme that where basically they're kind of taught the ways of Babylon. They're kind of indoctrinated in order that they might become Babylonians. And so um, they're put through this rigorous teaching scheme, um, 
and, and they're, um, they're renamed. And renaming sounds like a bit of a, to us, you know, who cares? It's just a name. But in the ancient Near East, um, name conferred identity, which is why throughout the Bible you get God renaming people at certain points because he's changing their identity. And, and these guys' identity has changed, and the names they're given are actually calls to, to the Babylonian gods. Quite literally, the name means I call upon, you know, the Babylonian god um, in question. And so they're, 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 they're being indoctrinated, they're being assimilated that they might become Babylonians, that they might kind of either serve within Babylonian society and therefore enrich it, or that they might then be sent back to Jerusalem to kind of basically be Babylonians in Jerusalem who look like Jews. Um, and I don't know about you, but we look at a story like this, and I think the first thing that probably occurs to us is, well, that's nice, but who cares? Like, some people got invaded a few thousand years ago. So what? What's that got to do with today? I want to ask a question, and that's this. What's shaping and what has shaped you and the person you are today? What's shaping and what's shaped you and the person you are today and the person you're becoming? Because I want to throw out an um, something that I think is an assumption, but I think is um, a commonly held assumption, but I don't think is true. I think many of us see ourselves as self-determining, rational, autonomous beings. You know, we see ourselves as kind of the way I am today, the values I hold, the lifestyle I choose to live, it is because it's the one I've decided kind of independently um, of a process of sort of thinking about it a bit to kind of to go for and to live out. And I'm not sure that's true. I don't think as human, humans we are as self-determining rational and autonomous as we think. I think actually we've got a lot more in common with these people who are taken into exile. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that it's rather strange that like, you will probably have the same set of values and ways of looking at the world as your friends and those around you? And that will be broadly similar to most people who live in this country. But if you were to go to China or India you'd have a completely different set of values and kind of way of looking at the world. And most people in that country would think along similar lines, which are massively different to the ways we think. You know, in China, for example, concepts of things like equality and freedom that we kind of take for granted as just like a given, almost like they've dropped from the sky, are not. Like, why is that? You know, we are shaped by so many things that we kind of don't even realize. You know, we are a product of our culture. Our culture, any culture, is always assimilating us into its way of being. That's what a culture is. A culture is a, a normalized set of kind of values, way of looking at the world, you know, vision of what the good life is. We are shaped by our family. You know, the family we grew up in, their influence on us, the things they liked, the things they didn't like. You know, if, if your dad was interested in history, maybe you'll be interested in history. And by our friends. You know, if you're in a friendship group and you don't like football and everyone in your friendship group looks, likes football, what can often start happening is you start taking an interest in football and after a few years, guess what happens? You like football. Is that a kind of you know, autonomous, random choice? No, it's influenced by the people around us. Have we sat down and decided that? No, it's kind of just happened to us on a kind of emotional level. You know, we're shaped by our schooling. We're shaped by mass media. You know, we today get more information, you know, simply by perusing the news on our phone 
than most people living 500 years ago would get in a whole lifetime. And there's all these messages coming at us all the time, all these kind of visions of what life should look like and what it should be coming at us the whole time, and they influence us. You know, the key example of this um, is adverts, advertisers. You know, advertisers know this, which is why they design adverts as they do. Nobody has ever advertised a shampoo by saying it's really good at cleaning hair. You know, you advertise a shampoo by kind of like, you know, you've got this like really good looking woman and her hair is quite literally shiny. Has anyone ever seen anyone with shiny hair? Like, and it's gleaming, like in the kind of way you feel like you'd see it from streets away. And, and then she's having a kiss with someone. What's that got to do with shampoo? Don't know. You're not sold a shampoo. You're sold a lifestyle. You know, there's a car, a Land Rover, driving, and, and the people at the wheel, they look desperately relaxed, and they're driving through beautiful kind of countryside, and it looks amazing. Or maybe they're pulling up at the beach and cracking the surfboards out, or maybe they're in their city, and then they're going for a drink. It's got nothing to do with a car. It's a lifestyle. We're sold a kind of lifestyle, and, and we, we live towards that. We, we end up kind of thinking, what, maybe I need that. Maybe I want that. We go to our friend's house and they've just redecorated the lounge and they've done it in a kind of nice Scandi vibe and we think that looks cool and I like that and we then feel sad about our own lounge and so we then go home and start thinking, well, maybe I should do my own lounge up. Has that come out of a process of sitting down rationally and kind of like autonomously decide? No, we are shaped, we are assimilated by our culture in more ways than we think. There was a famous experiment um, that was done about 50 years ago, by a guy called uh, Solomon Ash, um, a psychological experiment. And what he did is he got groups of people in a room, um, and there was two bits of paper. One had four lines on it of different length, and the other one had one line on it. And every participant was asked, which um, of the four lines on the left, you know, one, two, three, or four, do you think is about the same length as the one on the separate piece of paper on the right? And um, the participants, what they didn't realize is that there was only actually one participant in each group. So there's groups of about six people, um, and there was only one person who was actually a participant. Everyone else was an actor. And so they went down the line um, in these things, and the, the plant was placed like at number four, say. And the first couple of times, everyone got it right. It's really obvious. The line is really obvious which one's the right length. You can watch it on YouTube. And then the third time, they went down the line, and the first person, you know, you're sitting there as the person who's done the experiment, you look and you think, well, it's it's definitely line three, no ambiguity. The first person says, line one. Like, what an idiot. And then the second person says, line one. And you're thinking, it's a bit strange. And then the third person says, line one. And then it's you. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, oh, what's going on? And what they found is that three quarters of people answered incorrectly in line with the group the first time. A third of people answered incorrectly every single time. And, and they interviewed these people afterwards, and there was kind of two main reasons why they did that. One was because they didn't want to cause a fuss. They didn't want to kind of disrupt. They didn't want to make other people feel bad, and so they kind of just fell in line with them. They kind of just did what everyone else was saying. And, and the other reason was that, that people experienced a kind of cognitive dissonance. Well, if everyone thinks that's the case, then maybe I'm wrong. And they've kind of brought their own way of thinking into line with everyone else's as a result of this. Like, and what it showed is that as human beings, we are creatures who, who, who love to conform. We kind of easily assimilate to the group. We easily assimilate to kind of the mass culture. And we live in a culture, as I said last week, that I think is 
marked by two things. I think there's two underlying worldviews that kind of massively shape the culture and kind of give us a vision of, uh, of what the happy, like, good life is. And they're the worldviews of individualism and materialism. So individualism, the worldview that kind of says, um, you know, happiness is about you, kind of, it's, it's you do you. It's, you know, living your best life. It's kind of being true to yourself. It's finding out kind of what makes you happy, who you really think you are, and kind of pursuing that. And um, then materialism, which is, the, you know, the good life is about having the right things, having the right kind of lifestyle, having the right kind of stuff, going on the right holidays. You know, if only my lounge looked a bit nicer and I drove that car um, and, you know, I was able to have this much free time, then, then life would be really good and I'd be happy. And the thing is with these two worldviews is, is they're not working. You know, you look around the world and you look around Western society and do we see a world that's increasingly unified and happy and peaceful? No, we see a world that's increasingly anxious and um, factioned and bitter and angry and where, where there's, there's less satisfaction and where there's less equality than there ever was. These worldviews are kind of not leading us to a good place. They're leading us away from a good place. But more than that, their worldviews are completely in opposition with the way of Jesus. You know, Jesus has come to bring us freedom and life, and life in all its fullness. He's come to rescue us from ourselves. But the way of Jesus isn't about looking within yourself to try and find what you want and what's going to make you happy and kind of living that out. It's about looking to God and like allowing him to show you who you are. You know, it's, it's about looking to God and allowing him to fulfill you and bring you into a place of contentment. It's about allowing him to free you from the kind of things you feel you need in life, be that a relationship, be that a holiday, be that, you know, your lounge looking a certain way, and being content anyway. You know, the way of Jesus kind of runs in opposition to the ways of this world. And so in many ways, as followers of Jesus, we are a lot more like Daniel than we think. We are living in a world that is assimilating us to its way of being, because that's what all cultures do, that's shaping us into its way of thinking, but it's shaping us into a way of thinking and a way of being that is not the way of Jesus and therefore is not the way of life and life in all its fullness. As my hope over this kind of next few weeks as we go through this series is that that we might learn from Daniel's experience in exile, that we might learn from kind of how he navigates that, that we might be people who can thrive in this culture as those who follow Jesus without simply just being conformed to kind of the negative aspects of it um, and therefore experience the fullness of life in him and be a presence of hope and renewal in this world that points to something different and other and good. I'm going to read the rest of... Um, the chapter, and then just a few kind of quick lessons as we kind of tick this series off from Daniel here. So we'll pick it up in verse 8. So Daniel's in exile. You know, he's in this kind of like, um, you know, assimilation scheme, as it were. It says this, it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than all the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. 
Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and, uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Three things, three lessons, I think, from Daniel, which we'll explore more kind of over the coming weeks, but I just want to frame up now, that I think we learn here is how to, how to thrive in the place of exile, how to thrive in a place of kind of cultural assimilation. The first is this. Admit that you are in exile. You know, there's no naivety here from Daniel. He's not kind of like, oh, this is nice. Let's crack on. You know, he is fully aware of what's happening to him and the negative effects of it, and so he's going to stand against it. You know, he's clued into that. You know, if we are to thrive in this culture as followers of Jesus and live in his way, the first thing we need to do is to admit that we are those who are in exile. This world is not our home. This world is not kind of, you know, the kingdom of God is. That's the way which we think is of life. And I think the danger for the contemporary Christian is this. It's not that people lose their faith. I, I don't see that happening terribly often, if I'm totally honest. I don't think that's the greatest danger. I think the greatest danger is that we are assimilated into the culture so that we just become kind of you know, one with it, that we just become a kind of a mirror to it, that we, we just become individualistic materialists ourselves who, you know, the life we live is kind of just about me and my happiness and, you know, having the right stuff, but with a bit of God sprinkled on the top. You know, I think the reason why a lot of the church in this country has been brought to a place of, of, of frankly, just irrelevance is because it's just become a kind of vaguely sat, spiritually sanitized echo of the culture around it. Like, we don't offer hope to people if all we do is kind of mirror the problems. You know, we don't offer hope to people if all we do is kind of, you know, uh, occupy the same kind of vision for life that isn't working. You know, it's the way of Jesus that is the hope for this world. It's the way of the kingdom where, you know, he brings freedom. But the way of Jesus is completely counter to the way of the world. The way of Jesus isn't about me. You know, it's actually about God. And then it's about serving others. It's about kind of looking beyond yourself and finding life. It's about letting go rather than holding on. The danger for us is that we are assimilated by the culture. And so how do we start to stand against that? Well, we admit that we are a people in exile. Second lesson that we see from Daniel is, is, is this. He stays plugged into the world. 
He stays plugged into the world. Like Daniel kind of persists in this program. He doesn't kind of run off and escape to some far-off land. You know, at the end of it, he's, he's entered into the king's service. You know, he gets a top job kind of in, in the organization. You know, I think there's been a temptation of Christians over the years um, to kind of just disappear off into some kind of like weird sectarian conclave where we kind of have like this nice Christian world, but it's so separate from everything else that it's, you know, w- you know you, we're not present in it. You know, uh, the Amish would be kind of a, a modern-day example of this. The temptation is to think, oh my gosh, you know, there's a chance that we kind of get shaped by some of the negative aspects of culture. We don't want to be shaped by the negative aspects of culture. We want to be shaped by Jesus because we believe that he's the truth, he's the life, so we kind of escape. But actually, I think Daniel doesn't do that. He stays plugged into the world. Why? Because you can't bless anything that you're not part of. You can't bless something that you're not part of. Daniel stays plugged into the world. But, and this is lesson three, but he engages in practices of counter-formation. I talked about this a bit last week. um, The third lesson is that we are to engage in practices of counter-formation. I talked about this last week in the context of generosity, but if you're in a stream that's flowing and you want to go upstream, you've got to swim against the tide. You've got to swim against the current. You can't just sit in the stream and naively hope that you will get upstream. You won't. You'll go downstream. If we are in a culture that is going to be shaping us, that is going to be forming us, irrespective of who we are, irrespective of how clever we are or how erudite we are, you know, we've got to engage in practices of counterformation that root us in Jesus and that shape us in his way. And there's two things I think we see in Daniel that are key here. One is that Daniel is engaged in community. Like he, This isn't Daniel on his own. We kind of just read this book, and because Daniel's the name on the top of the page, we, we think of him, but it's not just Daniel. It's Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They're together in it. You know, if you want to do something that goes against culture, you've got to do it with others. I think sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming when you're kind of a minority group. But actually, that's not true. When a minority group gathers together, there is unbelievable power in it. If you look at the LGBTQ plus community, they comprise, depending on who you read, maybe 2 to 5% of the population of Britain. But their voice and their influence on culture, the way in which they've kind of advocated for certain rights and changes in the law, is unbelievably disproportionate to the proportion of the population they make up. How have they managed that? How have they managed that? They've united together. You know, events like Pride kind of instilled this kind of um, togetherness and this self-belief in a community that was actually incredibly small, had kind of everything going against it. You know, if you look at the influence that the Jewish community has had throughout this world, it's incredible. The amount of Jewish people who kind of have shaped you know, industry and culture, and yet you look at the amount of the world's population they make up, it's tiny. It's tiny. But again, they're a community that takes really seriously being with one another and kind of telling the stories of their community and celebrating the kind of uh, what it means to be Jewish. And like, there is an essential part that if you are going to be a creative minority in this world, you need to be in community. And so for us, that means what we're doing here 
matters. It means being part of a small group is, I would argue, essential if we are to thrive as followers of Jesus in this world. We need people to do this with. And so, yes, you know, we need our group of mates who we go to the pub with who've got nothing to do with church. Like, stay plugged in with that. Don't kind of leave that. Don't kind of just disappear off into a kind of a churchy bubble of relationships. We need that. But unless you're going to be shaped by your group of mates down the pub who don't know Jesus, you also need the equivalent group of friends here who are following Jesus with you and can cheer you on and can pray for you and can encourage you and to help you to go on the journey. So we need community. And the other practice of counterformation is that we need, um, we need spiritual practices. You know, spiritual practice is something we do that kind of orientates us towards God and kind of cultivates a dependence on him. Daniel, what does he do? He doesn't eat the food and the wine that's on the king's table. I mean, that just seems a bit obtuse, really. It's like, how dull, you know. Like, it's like he's being a pedant, but that's not what's going on. Daniel, in not eating the food and wine from the king's table and in saying, I'm just going to eat vegetables, what he's doing is he's placing himself in a place where he's not going to thrive unless God does something. Nobody comes to like, you know, the fullness of health and is like, you know, like, like his evidence at the end of this where um, Nebuchadnezzar looks at them and they're kind of, oh, oh here we are, um, healthier and better nourished than any of the young men. Nobody gets to that place simply by eating carrots and parsnips. You need a, a broader diet with more things. You can't kind of thrive just eating the vegetables. And yet Daniel does. The only way that can happen is if God provides for him. And so he puts himself in an intentional place of requiring God to provide for him to be as healthy as kind of all the others who are eating um, a more balanced, varied diet. He, puts him, he engages, in other words, in a, in a spiritual practice. And for us... Um, that's about, you know, cultivating practices in our life of, you know, things like prayer and worship, things that, that, that foster a dependence on God, you know, practices like generous giving, that, you know, giving stuff away, well, I don't have it to depend on, so I've got to depend on God. Practices like fasting that kind of root us in a dependence on Jesus. We are in exile. That doesn't mean we can't thrive there, but it does mean that we can't be naive and just hope that we can kind of just plod along, turn up every now and then on a Sunday and not be shaped by the forces of this world. If we want to be shaped by Jesus, if we genuinely believe that his vision for life is life, if we genuinely believe he is to be trusted, then we've got to admit that we're in exile, Stay plugged into this world, but engage in practices of counterformation that root us in a dependence on him. Shall we pray? Jesus, thank you so much um, that you love us. Thank you so much that you are the God who always wants to guide us in wisdom and life. Lord, you see us as we are, and we're all of us a bit of a mess. All of us, we've got things that we value that really aren't particularly helpful for us or the world around us. All of us can be selfish and impatient and difficult and unkind, and, and yet you love us still, Lord. 
And more than that, Lord, you're wanting to reshape us and to reshape this world to be as you created it. You're wanting to bring us into the fullness of life. And you're wanting to protect us from all the kind of things in this world that will kind of pull us away from your vision of the good life and will actually trap us in something that kind of promises a lot but delivers very little. And Lord, as, we, as, we, as we're here now, I just pray that you would come and speak to us and that you would show us what the next step on that journey of rooting ourselves in you looks like. Let's just give a bit of space for us to just meet with God and to just um, let him speak to us. If that's not familiar to you, um, you know, I, we believe in a God who, you know, we don't need to try hard to hear his voice. You know, he comes down to our level. All we kind of just need to do is relax um, and just ask him. And it might be as you do that that, you know, some things start to come to mind. You're like, oh, that's odd. That's a thought I wouldn't have thought. Maybe that's God speaking to you. Um, and if that happens, just continue the conversation. Just see what happens. At worst, you kind of embarrass yourself. Um, so let's just spend some time in prayer. Jesus, we want to stay rooted in you because we believe that you are the answer. You are our salvation. You are hope. You are the vision of the good life. And you invite us into your love and into your freedom that transcends all other visions of love and all other visions of freedom. And God, I just pray that you would help us. And over these coming weeks, you would guide us and help us to form and shape practices and ways of living that root us in you and that help us to go in your way and to not just be simply assimilated by the world around us, but to, to actually be shaped by you, the God who is the one who made us, 
and the one who is Father and who loves us and just delights to see us thrive and come to the fullness of life in you. Amen.